Last week, if you remember, we were looking at Romans chapter 6, and Mark, who was struggling with sin, if you remember, um, took us through this uh, whole argumentation that Paul was putting together about this kind of struggle, this balance between um, the grace of God coming as a result of what we do bad, and should we therefore do more things bad in order to receive more grace from, from God? And, and Paul was um, uh, kind of telling us, well, no, that's absolutely not the case um, because, uh, you know, we are, we are redeemed. We're living under a different law, as it were. And if you remember the uh, gospel according to SpongeBob SquarePants and the illustration that Mark used about kind of almost living in the world but outside the world, living under, under different uh, laws. Now, in Romans 7, we're going to see that Paul is kind of carrying on his theme uh, about this whole struggle, but here he's talking about the struggle that he has in himself to do good. And he takes us through what our response should be. So if you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 7, please. Um, I will read through the whole thing, so if you'd like to, to follow but I'm going to be looking at most of the text from verses 14 onwards, so don't worry, it's not going to be a a massive exposition of the whole chapter. But, you know, you've got to put things in context, haven't you? Because, as they say, a text without a context is a pretext. So, Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. 
But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, uh, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. A tough passage. Tough to read, actually, because there's so many kind of uh, contradictions in the text that's uh, um, being talked about. You know, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things... It's quite complex, isn't it? So hopefully we'll be able to unpack it. But what I'd like to do is put it in a little bit of the context about the trip to South Africa that we're going to make. Um, I was doing a little bit of research about South Africa to try and find out what kind of place it's going to be that we're going to visit. And I found out some quite interesting things. Did you know, for example, that it's against the law to sit closer than two metres to any individual of the opposite sex if he or she wears nothing more than a swimming costume? It's against the law in South Africa. So we're going to have to watch that. And do you know... (laughs) Do you know that bear wrestling is illegal? I had to look at this twice. Bear wrestling. Is that B-A-R-E or B-A-R? But no, it's B-E-A-R. Wrestling with a bear is illegal. And I was thinking, as we're going to be visiting this wildlife park, I wondered, could that get us into trouble? You know, if there's a, a bear that comes rushing for us, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa you're going to get us both in trouble here, you know, you wrestle. Um, but then I thought, hey, perhaps there's a, a, a way out here. Bear coming towards you, quickly put your swimming costume on, Two meters, whoa, back off. So you're then covered by the first law, so it's kind of okay. But South Africa is a fascinating place. Did you know that it produces 41% of the world's gold? 41%, nearly half, fantastic. Do you know that they produce 90% of the world's platinum? 90%. They are the second biggest fruit producer in the world. 
they have the third best quality drinking water in the world. They have a massively diverse animal and plant life. Table Mountain, that's a picture of it, has more varieties in species of life than the whole of the United Kingdom put together. It's home to the largest bird, the ostrich, the tallest animal, the giraffe, the largest reptile, the leatherback turtle, the largest fish, the whale shark, the fastest land mammal, the cheetah. They all live in and around South Africa. The world's first transplant was carried out in South Africa. South Africa is the only country where a single street has produced two Nobel Prize winners, Nelson Mandela and uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. What a country of fantastic potential. But. They have most people, sorry, more people with HIV and AIDS than any other country in the world. Out of a population of 48 million, 5.7 million have HIV or AIDS. Nearly half of the deaths are as a result of AIDS. More than half of South Africa's children live in poverty. Apartheid ended 20 years ago, but South Africa is now judged to be one of the most unequal societies in the world. 1.4 million children live in homes that rely on dirty streams for drinking water. Four in ten live in homes where no one's employed, and many South Africans believe in witchcraft and will blame unknown sicknesses and cases of bad luck on witches. What a country with fantastic potential, but it seems to all go wrong. Why on earth is that? How can it be that a country so rich can be so poor? And I guess we can kind of make that argument about so many countries in the world, can't we? God has given us such a wonderful creation with such huge potential, and yet almost the default position that we follow is one of failing to take advantage of that. And as we look at the passage in Romans 7, we almost see that the root cause of that is not creation itself, not necessarily country politics, but it's us as individuals. There was once a competition, I think it was in the uh, Sunday Times, when the editor invited people to write in to say what was wrong with the world. And the winning answer had only two words in it. Do you know what the words were? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. And Paul, as he takes us through this struggle that he has with sin, we begin to understand a little bit about why we're the problem with the world. So what's going on in this passage in Romans 7, apart from some quite tongue-twisting verses? When it boils down to it, Certainly the second half of the chapter is all focused around this message. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, 
the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. There's this kind of internal struggle that we want to do what's right, but fail to do it. The weakness of the flesh. I don't know if you've ever slept wrongly on your arm. Have you ever done that? And you wake up, and there's like nothing there. Yep. Your arm just won't do what, what you want it to do. No matter how much you will it to move, it's just flapping around, hitting you in the face. It's doing everything but what you want to do it. That's kind of like a picture of what Paul's saying here. Our flesh is doing exactly the opposite to what we want to do. We can't, almost can't control it. And we see later on in the verses the kind of anguish and pain that he feels from not responding to the requirements of the law. In fact, in verse 24, if you look, Paul kind of sums up saying, what a wretched man am I. In fact, the message is such a kind of despondent one. A lot of people have said, surely Paul can't be talking about Christians, can he? He must be talking about the struggle that non-Christians have with sin. Surely. Christians can't have this struggle, can they? But I don't think so. Why? Verse 1, what Paul says is, I'm speaking to men who know the law. People who understand what role the law has. In verse 4, it says, we've died to the law through Jesus. He's talking to Christians. Verse 22, he says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. So what we see here is not a statement about the authority that the law has over us, because Paul clearly says that actually through Jesus we die to the law. Jesus has kind of done away with the authority that the law has over us. This is about obedience to the law. It's about obedience of God's people to the law. Remember, Jesus said he never came to replace the law. He came to fulfill it. So the law is still kind of totally relevant to us who love him. I don't know if you noticed as I was reading, but the first half of the chapter, a lot of the tense was in the past tense. Paul was talking about this is what has happened, the transactions that have gone on to, uh, to be, uh, for us to be saved. But in the second half of the chapter, he moves more to the present tense. It's what he is experiencing right now in his life. So I think Paul is talking to Christians. And he says, the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I wonder, do you share his experiences? So do you go to bed sometimes and go, do you know what, I shouldn't have done that. I knew beforehand what I was supposed to do, and I did it, and I know now I shouldn't have done it, but I still did it. Do you have that experience? Can you sympathize with what Paul's saying, the struggle that he has? Becoming a Christian is not a promise of everything going to be fine. More of that a little bit later on. Those of you who are parents, or those of you who can remember when you were a child, did you ever teach your children, or were you ever taught to be naughty? Did your parents sit down with you and go, right son, right daughter, 
I'm going to tell you how to be naughty now. What kind of parents would we be if we did that? And yet, naughtiness, disobedience, almost comes instinctively, doesn't it? I challenge my kids sometimes when they're naughty, and I say, uh, why did you do that? And often I get the answer, I don't know. They don't know why they did it. They know it was wrong, but they did it anyway. This is part of the struggle. And I just want to explain a little bit about what the transaction that goes on when we become Christians. You see, we talk a lot about being a new creation when we become Christians. But actually what God does is he transforms, he renews our mind. He transforms, he renews our spirit, not our bodies. We're still unfortunately stuck with the same old bodies that we had before. It's those bodies that grow frail, (laughs) that do get sick, that do fail us, and that do die. One day, though, praise the Lord, those of us that trust God will be given new bodies. When God creates the new heaven and the new earth, when he calls us to be with him, the transformation will be finished. It won't just be a transformation of our minds and our spirits. It'll be a transformation of our whole bodies. We will once again get bodies that will never decay, that will never die, that will never fail, that will never grow ill, that will we'll never cry, we'll never hunger, we'll never thirst. Praise God. But for right now, we're stuck with the struggle of the fleshly bodies that we have, bodies that are subject to sin. And a bit of a sneak preview onto Romans 8 that we're going to be looking at shortly. Romans 8.22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay? Get that? So it's kind of a tough message, but it tells us that despite committing our lives to God, despite being renewed spiritually, we have this ongoing struggle. Even Paul doesn't understand it. He says, I don't understand why this is going on with me. But this is not about a discouragement, so I don't want you to go away discouraged. This is about looking forward to the later chapters of Romans. God's wonderful provision for us. But we do need to be aware of it. So Paul asks us the question about the law. And in having the law revealed to us, does that make the law bad because it makes us sin? Well, I want us to look about how we set the standards for our lives. Because Paul says... I would not have known what sin was except through the law. It's the law that helps inform us what God's standards are. It's a bit like driving. If I have never read the highway code and I drive at 90 miles an hour 
down the motorway, am I breaking the law or not? Am I breaking the law? Yeah. I might be completely ignorant of the fact that I'm breaking the law because I've never read the highway code. I've never read anywhere that said you mustn't drive more than 70 miles an hour on a motorway. But that doesn't make it right. In God revealing the law to us, he reveals what was already there in the first place. The standard by which he expects us to live. But it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because it allows us to know what sin is, but it moves us out from a position of being ignorant to what sin is to being completely aware of what sin is. Now, on previous uh, rebuild trips, the two previous times we went to Mexico, there was a saying that we used to help us understand a little bit about the culture um, within which we were going to be working. And the phrase went, it's not wrong, it's just different. And this phrase was used when to experience the kind of food, you know, the fact that we would eat cakes for breakfast. And we would see people get washed in dirty water. When we would have certain standards of dress that were unacceptable, bizarrely, in a country that's so hot you just don't want to be all dressed up. But the phrase, it's not wrong, it's just different, was to help us understand that actually culturally, sometimes there are differences. But I wonder whether when looking at God's standards, we sometimes fall into the trap of taking that kind of message too far and saying, actually, when we do things wrong, it's not wrong, it's just different. It's my way of doing things. It's my way of interpreting the law. I would say, no, no, no. God's standards are absolutely clear. He sets out standards for a reason. First of all, God's law is the scripture. And we know from what it says in those scriptures that all scripture is God-inspired, God-breathed, and is useful for instruction and discipline. We need to understand God's scripture to understand his standards. Scripture defines and reveals. It defines the kind of boundaries within which we can operate and reveals something of God, something of his character, his plans and his purposes. It shows us to us the kind of person that God is and how he would expect us to live. It is divine illumination. What do I mean by that? First of all, You can read the Bible cover to cover and it would mean nothing to you. There are many people who have read the Bible completely through and it means nothing. Words on a page. It's the Holy Spirit through divine illumination that brings to life the character of God, the words that we can understand them. And through God's Holy Spirit, words on a page become so much more. They become God's message, God's love letter, as it were, to us. 
it is a spiritual law. We cannot take that standard and apply it to our own thinking. And you know what? Sometimes I think the struggle that we have as humans, as Christians, trying to live a Christian way, is because we try to distort those standards. Because we try to put it in the context of the way we want to live our lives, not the way God wants us to live. We need to search the scriptures to understand his character, to know what's right and what's wrong. Now, it's interesting that when we understand the standard, when God reveals to us, and when we make that commitment to say, actually, I want to live differently, there's a kind of switch goes on in our lives. The switch is one that turns us from being enemies of God to being enemies of sin. So again, turns us from being enemies of God to being enemies of sin. Because before you know what the law is, and before you understand the significance that has, actually, the law doesn't matter to two, jot, two jots to those that sin. Yeah? Sin is not their problem. Actually, God is, is their enemy. God is their problem because he will mete out justice. When we become born again in Jesus, we're no longer enemies of God. We are inheritors of all that God wants to give us. But we do become enemies with sin, as we see in this chapter. It's sin becomes a struggle because it's been exposed to us by God's law, by his standards. Almost an impossible standard to live up to. The law points to God. We need it to point to God, not to point to ourselves and our own interpretation of that law. So what's the solution? Paul asks the question, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You might be wondering, what on earth is John showing a picture of a well, looking down a well? Well, I want to tell you a, a story uh, about a colleague of mine at work. It's quite an amazing story, really. This colleague of mine, uh, he is about 24, 25. He was on holiday in, uh, on a Greek island. And he was walking home um, from a, a, a meal that he'd had. Um, he wanted some fresh air, and uh, he thought, right, I'll go home, walk home on my own. I'll cut across this field and uh, make my way back to the hotel. As he crossed this field, unbeknown to him, there was a big well in the ground that had just been covered loosely with a few branches and leaves. He stepped into this, fell straight through, about 20 meters down this well. Nobody else knew where he was. He was stuck in this well where the sides were smooth breeze blocks. The diameter of the well was too big for him to reach his arms out and, and grasp the side. He was stuck in water too deep to touch the bottom. 
he was a in a completely hopeless position. Now, he happens to be an incredibly fit young man who swims competitively, plays water polo, and uh, um, you know is very, very strong. He survived for around four hours treading water. Just about got to the point of giving up, starting to hallucinate almost, thinking I'm going to die here. When from above, somebody let down a rope, pulled him out. I am sure that God's hand <laughs> was on him and showed those people where this man in distress was. I'm absolutely convinced of it. I've had a chat with this guy. He's not convinced that God saved him, but I'm working on it. <laughs> so, so pray for our conversations, will you? Because I believe that God rescues people like that for a purpose. Anyway, in our flesh, sometimes we think we can do it on our own, don't we? We think we're okay kind of treading water. You know, we can survive, actually. But in the end, there is no way out but being saved from above. Going back to that illustration of the dead arm, when you've slept on it and you've stopped all the blood flow to it and it's just flopping around, the only way that's going to work again and be functional is if the blood flows back in. The only way that we, as, uh, as Christians, can be effective for God is if we allow Jesus' blood to flow in to save us. That young man would have died had it not been for uh, um, people saving him. He was so close, when they pulled him out, he'd been using his leg muscles so much that the muscles had started eating themselves. They were so kind of full of lactic acid and everything. His lungs were starting to fill up with water. He was so close to passing out and dying, and yet he was saved. What a wonderful picture that is of how Jesus saves us. The struggle that we have with sin leads us so close to, to eternal death, and yet he reaches down from above to save us. With that in mind, I wonder what our reaction is to this struggle with sin. Paul had this overwhelming sense of despair. And maybe the problem that sometimes we have in this world is not the, uh, it's not the despair, but it's the lack of it. Are we too comfortable with this struggle? Do actually we put it, put it off and say, actually, I'm going to redefine those standards. It's not wrong, it's just different. And actually, it's not a struggle at all. Do we fail to agonize over sin, as Paul did, because we've redefined our old sins, changing the standards? Do we deny the reality of sin and our failure to live as God requires? 
do we actually make it worse? Do we help Christians to cope with their sin? Actually, we ought to be encouraging Christians to get to the point where they can't cope with their sin. Where they turn to God because he is their only hope. Sometimes we criticize people because they put themselves down because they feel helpless and hopeless when actually we should be saying, do you know what? We need to get to that point of helplessness and hopelessness because it's only through Jesus that we can be saved. It's only Jesus that can fix our self-esteem and put right that which is wrong. So Paul finishes by saying, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in in my nature a slave to the law of sin. Then chapter 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Do we want to live free or do we want to live in that struggle? I don't think we'll ever escape from that struggle because it's the nature of our human flesh. But what does God require of us if we're to live in that context? One of my favorite verses in Micah 6, 8 says, He showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. If that can be our response to the standard that God set, to the challenge of this struggle inside us, then God will walk with us every step of the way. So why are we doing Rebuild? Why are we going out to South Africa? Can we really make a change in a country that has so much potential and is yet has failed so badly? Well, we're going out there to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. We're going out there to show his love. And maybe we can't change the whole world, but we can change one house at a time. We can bring hope to that area. And that's all that God requires of us, to do our little bit where we are, whether that's in South Africa, whether it's in Lim whether it's about praying for people, whether it's about doing things um, physically and actively. It's about recognizing what God's done for us in defeating that struggle. We need to respond to that. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, this is a a tough passage, a passage that reveals the struggle that we have because as yet we are not fully transformed. Lord, we look forward to that day when you will call us and you will give us new bodies, when you'll give us a new heaven and a new earth in which to dwell. You'll take away the pain, the sickness, the suffering, the struggle that we have. But Lord, until then, I pray that you would reveal to us the way you would have us live, the way you would have us respond to that internal struggle. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.